Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Ofsted podcast, Ofsted Talks. This is the first episode in our new venture, and it's one that we're all very excited about. My name's Chris Jones. I'm the Director of Corporate Strategy at Ofsted, and I'll be hosting most of these podcasts, along with Anna Trithui, our Head of Strategy. Anna couldn't be with us today, but we'll see her in the next episode. I've got with me Amanda Spielman, Her Majesty's Chief Inspector. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Chris. And I've also got with me Chris Russell, who is currently Regional Director of the South East Region, but is about to take on a new challenge as our National Director of Education. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Very pleased to have both of you with us on this pilot episode. Uh, it's an experiment for all of us. We'll see how it goes. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. We're going to talk a bit about COVID and the impact of the pandemic um, on children and on schools uh, and other education providers. Um, we're going to talk a bit about both uh, the areas of concern that we've picked up, but also any upsides of, um, of lockdown for, for children and families. And we're also going to talk a bit about inspections and uh, what inspections might look like post-COVID and why inspection is important post-COVID. So, Chris, I'm going to turn to you first. I mentioned your new role as National Director of Education. Um, Tell us a bit about why you wanted to take on that challenge and what you think uh, you'll be letting yourself in for uh, in the first few months. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I mean, I guess I do know what I'm letting myself in for because I had the opportunity uh, during the pandemic to cover the role uh, for five months when Sean Harford, who's our current National Director, was seconded to the COVID task force. So that was obviously a very interesting time. That was between September and January. So obviously a lot going on in terms of the pandemic. Uh, and a big focus at that time was shaping our work to, to do very different things at that time in terms of what uh, our kind of inspection and, and wider work. Um, so very interesting time. I really enjoyed it actually, really enjoyed working with the team, excellent colleagues in the in the directorate. So really looking forward to it. I mean, what's great about the job, I think, is it sits so centrally in, in Ofsted as an organisation, all that, that policy work, all that developmental work around our inspection across the education remits. You know, you're very much at the centre of that. You know, as I say, working with a, you know, a fantastic bunch of people actually within the directorate who, who work on all of those things. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's obviously a great opportunity too, I think, within that role to, to have external engagement with the sector. And, and I really enjoyed doing that uh, during that period. Uh, and that will be a really strong focus for me. Um, but also, you know, I've been a, a regional director before that, an inspector, but I've been a regional director now for, I think, six or seven years. Um, so I'll also bring into that all that sort of experience of, of kind of inspection delivery, working with the inspectors who are out there doing the inspection. I'm also looking forward to kind of, you know, drawing on that and keeping those really close links, you know, with, with inspection and with inspection delivering with our inspectors, uh, you know, as I, uh, as I go into the role. Fantastic. Well, I'm convinced you can have the job. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. We'll stick with you, Chris, just for our first uh, topic of conversation. Um, we're going to talk about what we found when we did uh, visits during the autumn of, of 2020, when... Um, uh, when, when we did uh, a series of visits to all different types of providers um, which were non-judgmental but which allowed mm. us to report back on 
what was happening in the sector and report back to, to government, to parents, uh, to, to schools and colleges. Can you tell us a bit about what was going on at that time? What did we, what did we find? What were some of the, the concerns that we highlighted? Yeah, I mean, clearly that was a, a you know a, a very interesting time, really, because we we just had a number of months where the vast majority of children were out of school, uh, and from September, obviously, schools you know largely opened up. Although, as we all know, that there was quite an impact in terms of pupils being sent sent home, etc. So, you know, at that point, very much we saw the impact of disruption in schooling from sort of March through to September. Um, and you know we were also you know looking at the way in which schools were trying to get back to normal and actually get underneath the learning loss that had happened and how they might actually uh, enable pupils to catch up um, I mean I think what it showed us more than anything else because you know it was a very interesting few months actually enabling us to get underneath all of that which which fed into the thematic reports that we produced during that period um, and what it did show us if we needed to be shown I think was the absolute importance of of children being in school uh, and what children had missed by not being in school during that period and of course you know schools had put in place remote learning and I think you know schools were 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 finding their feet with that during that period from from March to September and what we were seeing there was that you know that practice had evolved from from very little really to schools actually making you know a much better job of remote learning where they needed to but but actually clearly the recognition that it's much better if if children are in school um so you know we we saw all of that really and it gave us a bit of a window on on that kind of learning loss and what what the, the effect that they'd been on pupils during that period when they really were out of school. Um, and I think, you know, leaders then and probably still now are, you know, still getting underneath that and still, you know, achieving an understanding of that really. But but it was certainly, you know, very apparent the, the impact of that. And I mean, it you know, very broadly too, you know, in the early years, for example, we saw some real impact on some of those basic things for younger children around, um, you know, fine and gross motor skills, some of the things around personal development and socialisation, uh, clearly a, there'd been a, a, a significant impact on there. Um, and, you know, more broadly, in terms of the curriculum, while, you know, pupils had made some progress with remote learning, clearly there are limitations there, really, and, and some pupils respond more positively to it, others find it more challenging and clearly there are elements of the curriculum that are much more difficult to deliver uh, in that way uh, and we really saw the impact of that and you know I've always been a very keen musician and it's been very apparent to me during this the impact uh, on music and, and the difficulties in actually uh, young people playing together musically. So you know some of those broader things we really really saw the impact of that. I mean, more widely as well, clearly what we saw there was a real impact on transition, that really important transition when pupils move from primary to secondary school. Clearly that didn't happen in the normal way. And, and you know, you really feel for those young people who've, who've, who've had that. Schools made the best attempt they could at, at supporting pupils through that transition, but it wasn't the normal process for them. So we saw a whole range of the impact of that really during those visits at, at that time. And obviously after that, what we did have was a period again of disruption from, from January onwards where most pupils again were out of school. And while schools had done a lot to develop remote learning and what we saw in the visits that we did in, in spring, virtual visits actually in spring, uh, was that remote learning had moved on. There's clearly no doubt that 
that it's not the same as pupils being in school. So, you know, there is that ongoing learning loss that pupils have experienced from that period. Amanda, Chris has given us a, a really good summary of what we found on, on those visits from the autumn. This was at a point when inspections were suspended and we didn't have that normal flow of information coming through to us. Um, why did you want us to be out there doing these visits? Why did you think that was important? Ofsted is such a key source of information from the ground um, and getting beyond the anecdotal because yes there are a great many an anecdotes that flow through here or there but our work setting up a program that looks at a, a good balance sample across the country people in difficult circumstances people who are coping well really helps get the national perspective and helps put all those anecdotes in proportion. So I really wanted us to be doing that, um, to be that pair of eyes that could help pick up and put together the, bit, the, the bigger picture that could really help everybody focus on the right things for children. And we know, don't we, that it was, um, it, it was hugely helpful to uh, government, for example, in planning their policy response to, to the pandemic to know what was happening uh, in, in, those, mm. in those providers. I think it was, and I think particularly the fact that we, we were able to do a series of rapid reports. We didn't just save it all up for a blockbuster at the end. We, we really worked our, our, to our teams to get as much out of the evidence we collected as quickly as we could to publish a, a series of monthly commentaries. And I think that was a really flexible and responsive way to approach the task. Chris, let's, let's talk about a couple more specifics um, in terms of what we found. Um, as a uh, throughout the the period of of lockdown, um, there was rightly quite a lot of concern about um, children with special educational needs and disabilities um, around disadvantaged children who perhaps didn't have um, uh, either the kind of access to education through you know, the online systems or or didn't have the kind of family support structures and family environment that made uh, education um, work in in the home. Tell us a bit about what we found um, for those groups of uh, vulnerable children. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, um, you know, clearly there's been an impact there for, for all children and young people, but, but some children and young people have been particularly affected by that. Uh, and one group are the, the pupils with, um, with, with SEND, with special educational needs or, or disabilities. And what we found there was that there was a particular impact in, in terms of, those children missing school for a range of reasons um, really some of that around some of those those young people clearly were shielding so couldn't go to school um, others there were problems of transport in, in others the um, the schools were trying to uh, uh, were struggling to sort of manage to, to, to deal with with some of those young people's particular needs um, so you know that there was the particular challenge around um, attendance at school which was particularly affected with with that group of pupils but actually more broadly than that as well there was a there was an impact on some of those support services which are so crucial for for many of those young people so a loss of speech and language therapy for example a lot of, a, a loss of um, uh, occupational therapy or physiotherapy in many cases those support services were badly disrupted and even when some of those support services started to go back sometimes they were some of those services were done virtually which clearly is not as the same not the same as as having that face to face 
So we've seen particular impact there. And also when pupils have returned to school, um, in some cases, the curriculum that, that's been offered or is being offered uh, is not as broad as, as it previously was. So some opportunities have been lost. Some opportunities, for example, for for community learning, for going out and doing things in the community have been affected by the by the pandemic. And as, as you also say, Chris, you know, that disadvantaged pupils in many cases have have been particularly affected by this period um, because so much during the um, the period of lockdown and the period of disruption has, has um, been dependent on where there's been remote learning on, on pupils helping young people. And while many of those disadvantaged pupils have been prioritised and have been in school during this period, and actually some of them have benefited from that and the smaller classes and the the, the more individual attention, not all have. So many have missed out and maybe have been, at, have been at home and haven't been able to benefit fully from remote learning. So have particular gaps in their, in their knowledge and understanding. Amanda, we've been talking recently, haven't we, about the system of support for children with SEND. Um, we've, we've published a couple of reports recently that build on the, the findings that Chris was talking about from our, uh, our, our work during the during the, the period of, of, of lockdown. What are your impressions of, of how the system to support children with SEND is, is at the moment? And, and what do you think the, the government in their SEND review should be thinking about? SENDs, it's so obviously one of the areas that's really suffered during the pandemic and for fairly obvious reasons. For many children, it, it doesn't seem to have been possible to give them the services on which they and their families so depend. So, so see, seeing so much of the in-person support um, melt, melting away um, for, the, for, the, for the duration has been really, really tough for children and their families. Against that, we have heard from a minority of children, um, perhaps sometimes children with very particular kinds of special needs and social difficulties, that it's actually been helpful for them to have the quiet, the peace um, of working from home. I'm not saying that this is an absolute universal blanket finding, but it's clear that on balance, it's been there's been a really big loss um, to to children and young people with it with it with SEND. It it, it has been a big problem. Um, and I think it's focused people's minds very much on what it is that we actually need to make school work for those children and to, to help them get as much in the way of education and as much social development to really make sure it's a good experience all round. And you, you've made the point um, during the last 12 months that actually the pandemic didn't impact purely disadvantaged children. Actually, there were lots of effects that were perhaps counterintuitive such as motivation uh, being a real factor in in whether children learned yes it's so interesting because everybody who works in our sectors is so accustomed to thinking about the the labels that we all use as shorthand for various kinds of disadvantage for free school meals pupil premium SEND, EAL and, and, and so on and we tend to assume that that various kinds of problem and disadvantage and underachievement will line up quite well with those labels and of course what we saw here was something that didn't line up neatly at all sometimes it was about families it was about whether the parents were working inside or outside the home um, and the effect that had on the amount of time they could spend with children on remote education sometimes it was about things like just like having younger siblings if you've got a parent at home but you've also got a toddler and a baby in the house those parents just cannot spend as much time 
on helping the seven-year-old as a family where there's just just the seven-year-old um, and the motivation piece came through so strongly and um, few people listening to this can't have heard stories of teenagers just sort of slumped in their bedrooms not really able to summon the energy to get out of bed and um, such depressing stories um, and that cuts right across the sexes social class every dimension and we heard from so many places about children who just couldn't be motivated and that added up to a substantial minority who really didn't um, get involved in remote education one way or another or not to any serious extent so there's a slice of children who well some children have motored we know there's a bigger slice of children who have really struggled We've talked a lot about the, the concerns that, we, that we've uh, reported on over the last 12 months or so. Amanda, you mentioned some of the positives for children with SEND, some children with SEND who would have enjoyed working at, at home in, in relative peace and quiet. It's clear from every, every survey and study I've seen that, that there is a subset of children who enjoyed being at home, whose parents enjoyed teaching with them. I think, I think there are parents out there who've discovered their inner teacher and some of those actually want to carry on with it, carry on home educating um, in, indefinitely. But I think there's a bigger group of parents who are, who are pretty happy um, to be handing back to teachers. I know that there are, there are some parents who've decided to carry on through this year who, we, where we think we're likely to see the children coming back into school in September. It's all a bit uncertain, actually, quite how many children have shifted to the, the home education um, line for good. It's one of those things we will, we're just waiting to see come September. It was interesting, wasn't it, to see the difference uh, between the first lockdown, the kind of spring, uh, summer uh, 2020 lockdown, and the second period of, of school closure in terms of the impact on parents, actually. I know from mm. speaking to the parents in, in my team, um, whilst in the first lockdown, you know, they, they were trying to keep the kids entertained but didn't have much schoolwork to give them. But the second lockdown, they were kind of inundated with, with online learning and, and worksheets and, and various things to do. And it became a full-time job in itself, being a, a parent of a, of a child in lockdown. Chris, that was something you mentioned yeah. in terms of the difference between the first and the second lockdown in terms of the the kind of breadth and depth of the remote learning offer that was out there. I think that's very true, Chris, actually. I mean, I think we have to remember, don't we, going back to March, April, um, you know, suddenly we were in lockdown and, and, and schools really pretty much from nowhere were, were, were kind of inventing their own remote learning in most cases and finding their way with it and, and sharing what they'd learnt with, you know, other school leaders and so on to develop that practice. Um, and we really saw that, I think. We went out in spring and because if, if you remember there uh, in early January, the schools were again closed to the majority of pupils and we did some remote monitoring inspection work during that period. And that really enabled us to, 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 to have a window on what schools had done with remote learning. And we, we certainly saw that, as you, as you say, Chris, I mean, in some cases, that certainly did up the expectation on parents. And I know, you know, I think some parents realised the challenges of, of teaching and of managing uh, young people in, the, in their learning. Um, but, but certainly, you know, we really saw, we, we did really see the development of, of that remote learning practice. And, and I mean, while, you know, as we've said, we, we all acknowledge that's not the same as being in school. And actually, it's a very personal thing for young people, really. 
those that in, can engage well and be motivated learning remotely and others that find that really difficult. I think that's really a really sort of personal thing. Um, but, but at least, you know, through that development, and we hope that schools won't have to close again like that, but, but I think what schools have learnt there will surely be helpful for young people, for example, who might be off ill or, or, or whatever, and, and actually can have a, a better education when they're not in school. But absolutely what we found is, you know, whatever schools have done, and, and I think they, they worked really hard to, and some did it extremely well, to develop that remote learning. It's not the same as having children in school. Yes, um, I agree with what Chris has said. And of course, children don't know what they might have started doing if they'd been in school. And some of the children who are perfectly happy at home may nevertheless have missed out on some plays, some football, some new activities um, that they didn't know they'd be interested in, that they haven't been able to try because school hasn't been, hasn't been open for them to, to offer them. So it's, I don't think we should get too comfortable. This whole sort of wider development, exposing children to things that aren't on the home radar um, is such an important part of what the education system does. Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't want to, to get too anecdotal, but I mean, speaking recently to um, a, a piano teacher near to me who, who does, you know, after school piano lessons and so on, he was saying, how, A, how many pupils dropped out during the pandemic and B, how few young people have started taking lessons during that period. So I think some of those broader educational experiences and, and I you know mentioned music earlier and, and do so again really you really worry for the kind of legacy of that and what young people have missed out. I think a lot of parents have really started to admire teachers for what they do um, and to understand quite how much skill goes into te teaching at teaching a class and making real get it getting real educational progress and one mother friend of mine who's got a child at primary school has said that she's not sure that her relationship with her daughter is ever going to recover <laughs> <laughs> so we, we we talked about the fact that yeah despite some heroic efforts on the parts of uh teachers and also mm. also parents and children of course you know, th there will have been learning time lost and there will have mm. been you know, uh, there will have been um, things that we would have expected children to know and to be able to mm. do um, but that they they can't as a result of of the various periods of of school closure and remote learning so how do you amanda think that children are going to catch up to where they should be catch up is a really difficult concept because um, first of all i know it's not a term that everybody is comfortable with but parents seem to like it um, and to find it an easy and understandable way to think about it. So please, well, listeners who, who aren't comfortable with the term, bear with me. But when we talk about catch-up, there's an implication that, that we know what the baseline is. And of course, COVID um, hit suddenly in the middle of a school year. We don't have, at national level, we've got a pretty good handle on where children on average will have been. But that doesn't translate into a good understanding, a really good understanding at pupil level or even at school level of where everybody would have been. So it's very important not just to assume that there's a, a neat sort of catch-up scale that can be imposed on every single child that says, you've caught up, you haven't. It's a much subtler thing than that. But pretty much every child has lost some of the teaching they would have had, and some have, um, with school parent help, sort of managed never, nevertheless to, to really sort of deeply learn everything, everything they would have done. But for many more, they 
they either haven't got things at all or there are there are chunks missing or chunks that they're pretty superficial with so so catch up is actually about picking up and really understanding what are the pieces that, that haven't been learned or have only been partly learned and really making sure that schools work well from that point to, to consolidate what's and strengthen what's there and to, to add the pieces that are to really build the strong foundations for educational progress going forward. It's not something that you can simply point and say, now do catch up. It's about really good diagnosis and teaching from where children are and recognising that the pattern the patterns of what children have and don't have will be somewhat different from usual. So it's got to be about take it, taking, taking children forward with really clear focus on what they need to, to get them ready for the next step in a way that, that won't leave them with horrible hidden weaknesses that could trip them up in the next stage. It sounds like you're, you're talking about uh, things that are, you know, are fundamental to education in normal times as well. You're really clear and productive use of assessment really well thought through, uh, sequenced and planned curriculum. Is that is that what you think the, the, the catch-up answer is? How about you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think this absolutely echo everything that Amanda has said there. And I think this really highlights, actually, the importance of, and clearly it was important before, but even more now, the importance of having clarity about your curriculum and the structure of your curriculum um, and those really key elements that pupils absolutely have got to have. I could say it was important before, but it's even more important now. So, you know, for schools to have that and have that understanding of, you know, where then the pupils, because of the impact of the pandemic, have got gaps in that. And to, and to work at ensuring that those, those kind of key curricular building blocks are, are strong for those young people. And I think what makes it a bit harder for teachers is probably that that the pattern of things that children do well on and and, th- and things that children struggle with is probably a little bit different when so many have missed teaching in the classroom. Some of the harder concepts that, that with, with good teaching you can get all children to, to grasp and do well on quite quickly are probably things that, that have disproportionately suffered during COVID. So they're probably dealing with slightly different patterns um, of gaps and difficulty from usual. And how, where does that leave us with tutoring then so lots of schools will be uh, using tutors uh, in order to help children catch up in fact it's one of the you know, government's aims is to get as many schools as possible using tutors but it sounds like from, from what you're saying Amanda it sounds like schools would need to be very careful about how they use tutors in order to make sure that they're teaching the right things very definitely um, tutoring, tutoring has some great strengths, but it's got to be well integrated with the the curriculum that that the ch- children are being taught. Um, it can be really good for for reinforcement and practice for children who just need that extra bit of time to 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 con- consolidate and strengthen concepts to the to the level of other others in their class. It can be very good for for filling in gaps where children have missed chunks of schooling that others haven't for filling in gaps. Um, it's obviously used. In normal times, a lot where children have got a particular objective they need to meet, a grade for a university course or um, an 11 plus test that a parent wants them to wants them to do well in. Um, but in this context, it, sh- it really should be about tying in well with the curriculum so that all children, even the ones who've come furthest adrift, get back into the range of the normal teaching in the normal classroom 
as quickly as possible because that's that's the most efficient and the most motivating way for most for most children actually is to be in in a classroom with their peers with a good teacher who really knows their subject you mentioned uh, exam grades there give us your your take on uh, the last couple of years in terms of how uh, exam grades have been have been issued well what a bumpy ride it's been for us all um, I think what we've really learned going through a second year of an alternative to to exams um, is quite how difficult it is to construct an alternative that satisfies um, that satisfies young people that they can really show what they can do and that it's fair um, that people who might have thought there were easy alternatives to exams probably um, know that any alternative is just as complicated. But I think a great deal of effort has gone in by teachers and many others to try and make sure that we've got something that's as good as it can be in these very difficult circumstances. It's not perfect. Um, I think it's important that everybody understands it's not perfect, but that it is a, a genuine attempt to give ch- children something that reflects um, what they've learnt, what they're capable of learning, and sets them up for the next stage. Chris, we the last two things we've talked about, tutoring and, and exams, uh, clearly have implications for how we inspect schools once we go back to, 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 um, to inspection in, in September. What will inspection look like uh, in, in September when we aren't able to, to rely on up-to-date exam results and we've got to take account of mass tutoring and all sorts of other catch-up interventions what what impact do you think that will have yeah i mean i mean first of all perhaps just to say something generally about that about that sort of process of returning to you know fully normal routine inspection and so on and, and it's felt very much like a long journey that because um way back from from april you know through through the autumn term through the spring term we totally changed what we were doing and i think that was absolutely the right thing for the times actually what what that enabled us to do in autumn was appropriately given the the particular challenges then that schools were facing in, in reopening up etc was that we we visited schools we didn't make that normal evaluation but we were really able to capture the process that schools had gone through during lockdown and and as they as they returned back to to more face-to-face uh, teaching um, and then as we went into spring term, although working virtually, we introduced that element of evaluation back into our work, but very much monitoring focused on schools that were weakest going into into the pandemic. But we very much you know, felt and feel that the best thing that we can do as an organisation in terms of supporting that the process of recovery is our normal inspection process. And that's what uh, we're working through this term in a, in a kind of process of transition to be um, to be able to do that fully in September. So, you know, we do feel that our normal inspection tools were absolutely right for before the pandemic and they're absolutely right for now. Uh, our ins- education inspection framework, we spent a long time developing enormous amount of engagement with the sector and, and to ensure that we were really getting it right and, and, and ensuring that it can have the most uh, the most impact we only did it for about seven months of course and then and then we were locked down but what we saw during that period was the impact of it the the value of it the very positive way in which the sector received it and we absolutely you know are finding that as we as we move back to that this term that 
doesn't mean we don't need to make tweaks and we, we have made some tweaks to it to ensure that it reflects COVID and the particular challenges of COVID. And actually we've already um, put our revised handbook for September on our website so, so people can see that already. But we did feel that we didn't need to make enormous changes to it. We did feel that at its core, you know, it absolutely gets underneath education. It focuses on the quality of education. There's a strong focus on the curriculum. And we therefore think it's actually the right tool for when, you know, as schools are, are returning to normal and, and are, are dealing with uh, pupils who may have lost learning, etc. So I, I think the real value of the education inspection framework is that strong focus on quality of education and particularly that strong focus on curriculum planning, which is going to be more important than ever. So, you know, we're confident that we've put a lot of thought into this and a lot of piloting. We're confident that our education frameworks uh, framework is absolutely the right thing for now and, 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 and for, for routine inspection going forward. No doubt um, there'll be some relieved school leaders and indeed inspectors uh, at not having to read uh, an entirely new post-COVID inspection handbook. Absolutely. And we've, we've listed all the changes, but as people will see, you know, on the whole, they are really minor tweaks to the, the framework. And I'll come in here because I, it's it's really worth saying, I think, that the schools and colleges I've visited this term, the, um, the people I've talked to, a message that's come come to me really strongly is you are keeping the EIF, mm. aren't you? Um, people have been wanting that re that reassurance that it's not being mm. tossed out of the window, both because it's it's good and because because people have have had enough enough change go, going mm. on on many fronts. Mm. That the, the continuity and clarity is, is really welcome I think. But, but clearly really important that we tested it to make sure that we were being fair and, and you know we did a lot of piloting to ensure that that, that was the case and actually we've although we've particularly focused on on our normal monitoring visits to um, to schools graded requires improvement or, or inadequate this term in quite a few cases um, we've converted those inspections to full inspections and, and you know improved the grades of those schools and, 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 and really tested out that full inspection methodology and found that it works well and obviously great news for those schools that despite the challenges of COVID they've still managed to make that improvement uh, either out of out of inadequate or, or from requires improvement to good. Yeah and it's great that they've been able to, to be recognised for, for that. Um, Amanda more broadly we talk about Ofsted being a, a force for improvement in the system. Some people will say post-COVID Ofsted should just leave us alone to get on with it. Talk to us a bit about how you see inspection as being um, part of how the system improves. So I think there are at least three ways that we really are a force for improvement and getting those back online matters so much. First and foremost, children have just one chance at education. So the idea of us not doing our job, not helping to, to make sure that every child is getting an experience as good as it can be, that really, really matters. But there are two other things I'd like to say on top. The first of which is we've redesigned inspection in a way that puts significantly more emphasis on making sure that the process is valuable for the people at the receiving end that they come away from inspection thinking that conversation, that dialogue was helpful, that it's helped us think through what we should be doing differently, um, that it's worth, worth the effort involved. And the third piece is that we've thought a lot more about the insights we can give from all the work we do, how we can draw out of inspection 
the kinds of insight that help the sector, that help government think differently about what they do, make choices that then circle back round um, and imp improve and broaden the experience that children get. And at the end of the day, it's all about making that experience as good as it can possibly be. Thank you very much to Amanda Spielman, Her Majesty's Chief Inspector, and to Chris Russell, uh, new incoming National Director for Education. This has been Ofsted Talks. You can find us on Podbean, Twitter, or the ofsted.gov.uk page. Uh, in future, we hope to have guests from outside Ofsted uh, to have really good, uh, thorough, intense discussions about issues like exclusions, prison education, social care, and, and many more. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Goodbye. 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 Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks.